Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. We're going to tackle a couple issues on the program this time. Later on in the hour, the Defense Department recently announced it's changing the name of its Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, dropping the word experimental. The Pentagon says the change reflects the permanence of what's now called DIU and the ongoing need to engage with traditional firms in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. But there's more going on than just a name change. Sean Heritage, DIU's acting managing partner, joins us to share some details. First, though, for the second year in a row, the Defense Department's Inspector General has just released what it calls a compendium of open recommendations. The document is a list of all the recommendations the DODIG has issued to the Pentagon and the military services and defense agencies that have gone unresolved for a year or more. There are 1,558 of them, and 56 of those have been open for at least five years. The compendium also singles out 33 recommendations that the IG says could save the department $2.3 billion if DOD were to implement them. To talk more about the compendium, we're joined by Troy Meyer, the Assistant Inspector General for Audit at the DODIG. And Troy, thanks for joining us. And if, if if you could start us off by talking with us a little bit about, you know, why do this? This this is obviously something that costs resources on your end. So talk us through what what value the DODIG sees in producing this compendium. Okay. Well, uh, each year we we you know conduct audits, evaluations, investigations for the purpose of detecting, deterring uh, waste, fraud, and abuse, and ensuring programs and activities are efficient and effective. And through our uh, work, uh, we uh, identify and disclose a wide variety of areas that the Department of Defense can improve, um, and we make recommendations that the department has to uh, uh, address and uh, hopefully implement to improve the uh, department. Uh, we, we believe this is a, a worthwhile exercise because uh, our oversight work does not uh, end when we issue our report and make our recommendations, but it's to uh, see everything through and to ensure that the recommendations are indeed uh, implemented, uh, to ensure the department follows through on the agreed-upon actions to implement the recommendations. Mm-hmm. And just to compare numbers a little bit, there, there were, you found that there were 1,558 open recommendations in this year's compendium compared to 1,298 in last year's version. Now, obviously, that's not all pure growth. Some of, some of the things came off the list while others were added. But, but can you talk a little bit about the various reasons why the number is higher this year? Uh, last year, as you mentioned, last year there were about uh, there were 1,298 uh, open recommendations. The the department was able to provide uh, documentation or uh, uh, to uh, for to show that they implemented about one third of those recommendations. However, uh, we we continue to do our work and we continue to uh, issue the department uh, new recommendations. Uh, you know, I think uh, over the last year, uh, since the issuance of the last compendium, there were over 800 new recommendations made to the department. So uh, we've made new recommendations faster that, than the department could have um, uh, provided us information to close them. Mm. Since you issued the first compendium, has the has the follow-up process and the department's response to open recommendations changed in any noticeable ways? I'm just asking, you know, sort of a general question about the working relationship between the IG and DOD components as far as resolving things that have been open for a while. Uh, the, the department... Uh 
you know, takes our takes the compendium very seriously at the highest level within the department. It did uh, get attention. Uh, so uh, initially, they uh, they uh, they were focused on addressing the the dollar-related uh, findings, the potential monetary benefits. Uh, uh, to, and so over the last year, uh, we've been working very closely with the department, meeting with them on a regular basis to uh, ensure that uh, they are implementing recommendations and providing us the information so we are satisfied that the recommendations have been addressed. On that dollar figure, this year's version points out that, that DOD could save potentially $2.3 billion um, if it, I, I think that's just for the high priority recommendations that you identified, but correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, the, 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 the point is there was obviously a very deliberate decision to characterize these in dollar terms. Um, talk about that a little bit. Uh, we, we try to quantify uh, our findings uh, when we can. In some cases, uh, it's, it's, uh, we will review uh, a contract and we'll uh, make a determination as to whether the contract properly billed the, the government. For example, uh, some contracts uh, require certain labor categories or certain qualifications for, for labor. And uh, we'll, we'll look at uh, the, the contract and compare it to what was actually provided and make a determination as to whether that was provided. And if it's not, we will uh, make a recommendation to, to recoup uh, funds. In other uh, cases, uh, the, the, a quantity of a weapon system may, may not be supported. Or uh, in another case, we found that uh, medical service accounts were, you know, that were delinquent were uh, not being referred uh, uh, for collections. Uh, so when we can, uh, you know, we do try to, to quantify our our findings. Uh, however, not every recommendation, in fact, most recommendations probably are management improvement recommendations. Got it. Let's go back to something you talked about earlier, which is the follow-up process and, and just the fact that, as you said, you know, that the IG's work does not end on the date that you publish a report. I don't think that's as well understood as it as it could be, especially among people in my line of work who when we do write about your guys' findings, we tend to just focus on, you know, the report at a point in time and, and not follow up as, as you guys do. So how does the follow-up process actually work? What do you do once a report has been issued? Once a report is issued, uh, we we periodically uh, reach out to, uh, to the department uh, to see what progress is being made to implement those uh, recommendations. Uh, for example, uh, when we issue a draft report, the uh, the agency has to uh, respond and tell us whether they agree or, or disagree. Uh, if they agree, uh, there is a regular uh, regimen of, of follow-up where they will provide us uh, the progress they are making on implementing the recommendations. If there is a disagreement, then we, we will meet with the department uh, until we can uh, come to some kind of resolution. And that may be uh, a decision on the part of the department not to implement a recommendation, or it may be an alternative uh, a solution that, uh, identify, that, that goes to the underlying uh, cause that we identified. Within the 1,558 that you reported on this year, you said there are 102 that are unresolved. Talk a bit about what that means and, and to what extent you can make efforts to get them resolved. 
the 100 and 2, so there, there are two uh, ways that a re recommendation may be considered unresolved. Uh, the, the, the most obvious is if the department uh, disagrees with the recommendation. And for the most part, the department uh, actually agrees with our recommendations. The other way a recommendation may be unresolved is if you know, we felt like in, their res in the response uh, to the draft report, the department uh, didn't necessarily address uh, all the important aspects of the recommendation. And for the most part of the 102 unresolved recommendations, 78 were instances where uh, we felt there was agreement but with the recommendation, but they, the department didn't necessarily address all the aspects of the recommendation. So we had to go back and solicit uh, additional uh, comments to ensure uh, that we were on the same page as, as the department regarding the recommendation. And if I understand correctly, the, the remainder of that 1,558, that represents cases where DOD has essentially agreed with your recommendations. They just haven't taken action within the one year they're supposed to. Is that right? Yeah, yes, they, they have not uh, completed uh, their, their action, the agreed upon action. And you've got 56 on the list in the compendium this year that are at least five years old. And I'm just wondering if there are any common explanations for why recommendations can go that long without DOD addressing them to your satisfaction? So what we noted with uh, those those 56 recommendations, there were a number of them where it required the implementation of, of policy that had to be thoroughly uh, coordinated uh, either within the department among the different components of the Department of Defense or perhaps with outside uh, agencies like the Department of Treasury, GAO, uh, OMB, or maybe um, a, a Federal Accounting Standards uh, Board. Um, so in, in those cases where it requires extensive uh, coordination, uh, the implementation uh, of the recommendation does take longer. Um, however, we did, you know, we do have recommendations that are around 10 years old, and that, that is an excessive amount of time to have an open recommendation. Um, which goes to the point of, of this compendium is to highlight those instances and to uh, get them uh, in front of uh, agency management so uh, uh, they can be addressed. Yeah, and to that point, when, when, you, when you come up with a compendium, do you just merely publish it on your website as a whole addressed to the Defense Department, or do you, do you address open recommendations that are relevant to a specific DOD component, let's say the Army, let's say a defense agency, directly to that agency's leadership and, and point out to them, look, here's everything that you've still got open that, that you've got on your plate. So the, the compendium uh, in the appendix uh, is broken out by, by service. So uh, let's say the Army, they can go to uh, Appendix A of the compendium and they could see all the open recommendations that were uh, addressed to them. The compendium does get distributed throughout the uh, department. So it's not just uh, the, the Secretary of Defense or the, the Deputy Secretary that gets the compendium, but uh, um, the, the senior leadership uh, within the department does. Uh, get the compendium, uh, and it is it is a, a wide topic of, of discussion. And you've touched on this a bit, but but you identified 25 recommendations that you call high priority. Can you talk a bit more about how you identified things to put in that high priority bucket? 
we we look at the the topic area. We we try to uh, identify recommendations that represent a broad spectrum of our work and link it link uh, the recommendations to uh, a management challenges document that we put out every year. That's basically our assessment of the uh, department. So if somebody you know goes through the high priority recommendations, uh, they'll they'll know you know which management challenge uh, area that we feel um, it, that recommendation falls under. Uh, but it, it, it does represent, one, the, the broad spectrum of our work, uh, two, uh, progress that we believe the department is making and implementing the recommendation, and three, um, issues that we want to just get right in front of the department. It could be related to uh, potential monetary benefits or, or life and safety uh, issues. Uh, one of the recommendations that, that we uh, talk about or one of the reports we talk about is uh, transmitting FBI fingerprint card or bio, uh, fingerprint cards and disposition reports uh, to the FBI when somebody is uh, court-martialed. Yeah, you're one step ahead of me because I was just going to ask you for examples. I, mean, I, I realize a radio interview is not the best medium to detail all 25 of the high-priority ones, but what, what are give, give us a few other instances of, of, of open recommendations that you thought uh, warranted being on the high-priority list. So basically, um, the the high the high priority recommendation represents a, a broad spectrum. For example, uh, we have a, a contractor that inappropriately billed for our labor categories, where we felt the uh, people that were hired under the uh, contract didn't have the uh, qualifications that were uh, stated in the contract. Or uh, another example may be medical service accounts where medical services were provided, they were not paid, and after 180 days they're uh, supposed to be referred uh, for collection and they were not referred. So that's, that's lost um, uh, money to the uh, department. This is kind of out of left field, I realize, but but have you thought about, or maybe you do, characterizing or grouping recommendations by the ease with which they could be implemented? Uh, in other words, give the department some potential for some quick wins, if that makes sense. Yeah, we don't we don't identify uh, those uh, recommendations in that manner, but we do uh, recognize that some recommendations are are more uh, complex and harder to implement than than others. Um, we have one recommendation that is on the uh, aged list that seems pretty simple. It requ you know, requires, uh, uh, you know, regarding certain uh, contract clauses that are required to be in contracts. So in, in those cases, it does seem like a, a simple fix. Yeah, and that really gets to the heart of my question because you would normally assume that if something's been open for five years, it's because it's really hard to do. But you're saying that's not always mm -hmm. the case. That's, that's not always the case. That's, that's correct. That's Troy Meyer, the Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit, talking with us about the compendium the DOD IG just released, detailing the more than 1,500 recommendations the IG's issued that have been open for more than a year. We'll post a link to the full compendium at federalnewsradio.com. Short break, and when we come back, Sean Heritage, the managing partner at the newly rechristened Defense Innovation Unit, joins us. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. 
Just a few weeks ago, the Defense Department announced it was changing the name of its Silicon Valley Innovation Outpost. The Defense Innovation Unit Experimental is now just the Defense Innovation Unit. DOD says the change reflects the fact that DIU is now a permanent part of its research and engineering enterprise. But there are other changes underway at DIU besides just the name. Earlier this year, the Government Accountability Office overturned what had been the largest award in the organization's history, saying it failed to follow the law with that $10 billion other transaction agreement for cloud services. Since then, DIU has issued few, if any, new solicitations to industry. It's also been without a permanent leader since February, when Raj Shah left his position as DIU's managing partner. Sean Heritage is DIU's acting managing partner. Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni talked with him about where the organization currently stands. The Defense Innovation Unit right now, um, I wouldn't say it was going through a pivot, but a period of, shall we say, thoughtful reflection. Mm-hmm. So recent experiences, some of which have been rather public, have given us reason to really embrace the fact that we are a learning organization. And as we continue to experiment, there's going to be hiccups and things we'll learn along the way. And it's important to make sure that we are modifying our processes and ways of doing business as a result. So Yes, the number of CSOs have slowed down, and yes, it's rather deliberate uh, as we begin to focus more and more on choosing the most impactful projects or problems to solve and ensuring that we are executing our processes in a defensible way. Um, The recent GAO findings um, that did come out have given us reason to reflect and make sure that the decisions that we've, we've made all along, which we feel really confident in the rigor behind them, um, are defensible, defensible by those who aren't necessarily part of our day-to-day operations. So communicating more, et cetera, et cetera. And we have worked with our, our contracting teammates at ACC New Jersey, Army Contracting Command New Jersey, to reevaluate, modify, and, and update, uh, in keeping with those GAO findings, our commercial solutions opening process for that very reason. So no real pivot. No, uh, no accidental slowdown. Um, everything is on purpose. So this is this something like maybe we saw with uh, DIUX 2.0 when Ash Carter kind of uh, put the brakes on things for a second, kind of changed the, the deck chairs a little bit and made things uh, what he thought would be more Silicon Valley-like? I wouldn't say it's similar to, to 2.0. 2.0 was a, a very deliberate rebranding, refocus, uh, new leadership, etc. And it was... Um, I'll say, for lack of a better word, externally driven. Uh, this is all internally driven, um, and it's just us being responsible um, members of the department, evaluating how we do things and modifying things that will be transparent to, to most on the on the outside. And I know that you've already touched on this a little bit, but other than the name change, which it sounds like the name change is something that solidifies DIU within the Defense Department, uh, what kind of changes are you looking at making, um, you know, especially focused on that GAO report? Well, I mentioned uh, with respect to the GAO-focused or GAO-inspired changes, um, those are more about our how we communicate um, and how we write contracts from the beginning so that those who are lo- looking from the outside uh, won't question um, things as we move to production, uh, won't have reason to question them. So this is more about satisfying others. Other changes that we have already made, um, back in April, we committed to what, what I'm calling a, a yes-and phase. So traditionally, since 2.0, uh, DIU has been focused on fielding capability, so solving problems across the department, faster, better, cheaper, 
leveraging commercial technology. Um, we continue to do that. We have over 70 problems that we've solved or are working to solve uh, via our, our prototype process. So we continue to do that. Um, the and part is embracing the fact that we have organic expertise within our team. So we have a create line of effort, which is focused on creating tailored solutions that leverage commercial technology. So the, the create line of effort is focused on uh, creating tailored solutions leveraging commercial technology. The, the a third line of effort that we've really embraced, we've been doing it all along, but really more deliberately now, is the coach line of effort. So this is coaching people across the department um, on commercial methodologies as well as DIU processes. So there's two programs that we've, we've started uh, recently as a result of that. We call them affectionately the hacker program and the scaler program. The hacker program, which we, we spell capital H, capital A, capital C, capital Q, lowercase er, so it's acquisition hacking. So we have four members, uh, acquisition professionals, from across the department. We selected from a pool of 41. Um, they spend four months with us learning our processes inside and out so that they can go back to their parent organizations and do things in our image. On the scaling side, uh, we've committed to doing our best to create another organization within the department in our image from a CSO and OTA perspective. We have four folks from the F22 program office spending the same four months with us so that they can go back um, and emulate us. So we, we feel as though that if we are the only ones doing things the way we do them right now, then we've let the department down. Right. So right now we are focused more and more on scaling how we do things um, so that we can move on to, to solving the next experiment. Just for the listeners, would you mind kind of explaining just to, in, a, in brief the CSO contracting vehicle and how that differs from the DFAR and FARS uh, type stuff? Well, our commercial solutions opening is, is, um, was developed to focus on affording non-traditional companies the opportunity to do work with the department. So these are companies that haven't traditionally done any work with the department, have no reason to do work with the department. Um, it's too cumbersome, and in, in many respects, they are at a phase of their dev development where their venture capitalists, for example, are coaching them or were coaching them not to do work with us just because it wasn't in their best interest for long-term commercial viability. So the commercial solutions opening is focused on making it easy for them to apply for opportunities to solve our problems. Um, we've seen over time the number of companies vying for an opportunity continue to increase. Uh, recently we had a commercial solutions opening that garnered 77 um, non-traditional companies who wanted an opportunity to help solve, us, solve our problem. Um, so I like to say we define success by the number of commercial companies that want to do work with us and see themselves as an extension of the national security, security innovation base. And we also measure success by the number of DOD customers um, that come to us asking for help to, to solve their problems. And both of those are on the rise, though the number of CSOs that we may be releasing are not on, is not on the rise. The number of problems we've been asked to solve continues to rise and the number of commercial companies interested in helping out continues to rise. So how are you still doing outreach and still working with these companies without the, the CSO contract? Okay, we still have the CSO contract. So a big part of our business line is, um, is market research. Mm -hmm. So we have responsibility given the fact that we are here in Silicon Valley, we are in Austin, we are in Boston. 
and we are in the Pentagon or really the, the, the Dulles Tech Corridor, we have a responsibility to be out and about to figure out where the markets are going um, and become intimate with the, the companies that could potentially help us solve problems. So outreach continues to be a priority, um, even on the, um, we'll call it the, the nationwide side. So I mentioned four locations. Right now we have companies from 42 of the 50 states are aware of what, what we do, how we do it, and invite for opportunities to help solve problems or responded to a CSO. Of late, we have been spending time focusing on those other states who haven't had a company apply to us. We write that off as to they're, not, they're just not aware of, of us and the opportunity that we represent. So we've recently gone out to uh, Kentucky and Kansas um, and made sure that uh, a wider audience is aware of what it is we are attempting to do and how they can help the cause. Sean Heritage is the acting managing partner at the Defense Innovation Unit. More of his conversation with Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni after a short break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbin. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. I'm getting back to our conversation with Sean Heritage, the acting managing partner at the Defense Innovation Unit. He talked with Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni about what he says is an intentional period of thoughtful reflection about the organization's future. As far as, you know, the, the con- you still do have contracts that you uh, have open or that you've worked on before that have been in prototyping. Um, what have you been working on lately with that kind of stuff? And, and are any of them going into full line production, that kind of stuff? Well, we recognize that the OTA is not the only vehicle by which things can scale. So we embrace uh, FAR contracting where it makes most sense. We are not of the mind that FAR is bad and OTA is good. There are places for any and every contracting vehicle. So we found ourselves of late really looking at the prototypes we have um, that we're working on now and creating a wider um, customer base along the way. So for me, the example that comes to the top of my head is that of predictive maintenance. Uh, We've been working with the Air Force on predictive maintenance, uh, focused first on the um, the AWACS. And um, the effort there is just to enhance readiness on that platform and along the way figure out how we can better do predictive maintenance that could scale across the board. So over time, though it was AWACS folks who came to us first with the problem, we knew we were solving a problem for a wide audience. And since then, we've had, there's four air platforms across the Air Force, the Bradley Fighting Vehicle in the Army, um, and we're recently engaging with the Navy on a shipboard-oriented predictive maintenance program. So we, we like to say that we're not in the prototype business, we're, we're in the, the production business, but when I say production, you know, I, I'm not limiting that to CSOs. Um, and we feel as though everything we do will solve problems for more than one customer. And, and, you know, I just wanted to kind of bring this up is that some of the criticism that I've heard of DIU is that, you know, a lot of money goes into prototyping, but it doesn't, it may not necessarily make it to the production phase. I was just wondering if you had maybe a response to that, that criticism. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't think that that is a criticism. I think that that's reality. So when we talk about our fielding, field line of effort, we, we expect that somewhere between 40 to 60% of the, the projects we do will scale across the force. Now, those in the government might say, wow, that's really low. You know, that's an F by, by my standards, right. thinking back at school. 
um, out in the VC world, that's hitting home runs all the time, um, and that amazes them. Right now, we are at 38% um, and trending in the, in the upwards direction. So we feel as though we have a responsibility to accept risk on behalf of the department. And if we were batting much higher than we are right now, then, uh, then I think that we'd be taking, we're not taking enough risk um, and doing things that others could do on their own. And, and that's one of the things that we like to celebrate or emphasize is that we only do what we can do. If others can and should do it, then we have responsibility to let them do it. Right. So the projects that we take on, they must meet three criteria. They must be problems that we believe can be solved in large part, leveraging existing commercial technology. They must be problems that we believe we can help others solve within 24 months. And they must be problems that are shared beyond one customer. If they don't meet those three criteria, then it's, it's a problem that somebody else can and should solve. And, and what do you do as far as um, oversight and transparency? I know you have to work quickly, but at the same time, you know, a company could easily make a you know, really trashy prototype and make a couple bucks off of it and have it never go into production. So how do you kind of uh, barrier yourself against something like that? Well, we found that the, uh, it should be no surprise that the, the companies who want to do work with us aren't interested in prototypes either. Mm-hmm. Um, they're interested in the upside of, of production and scaling. You know, in many respects, we're, the, we're the, potentially the largest customer in the world for any one of these, uh, these companies out there. So we found that they are especially deliberate in ensuring that um, they do their best to make sure that the prototype is a success, that it solves the problem of, that we are attempting to solve and that it is developed in a way that is focused on integration and not just, you know, wowing us at the outset. So a failure for them, or a failure for you is a failure to them at the same time, basically. Absolutely. There are people out there that aren't aware of the inner workings of, of DIU or, for, or that, for that matter, the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering. And the, the fact that we report to Dr. Griffin within the Undersecretariat um, is a great communication of... Um, endorsing our models, so to speak. So I like to say that we used to be a, a direct report to the DepSecDef because we needed to be. And right now we have enough customers uh, within the department, enough companies on the outside, and enough support outside of the DOD for that matter, that uh, we are nestled nicely within um, the Undersecretariat side by side with SCO and DARPA. And I think that makes a huge amount of sense. Um, but I know that others have interpreted interpreted it differently as a demotion, which it by no means is. The other thing that I'd like to mention is um, the, the fact that we still do have an interim managing partner has also been misunderstood. Um, Dr. Griffin has told me repeatedly that he is making sure that he finds the right leader uh, to lead us uh, at DIU uh, because he believes so strongly in the model and what we are doing. He does not want to leave anything to chance. And he felt as though we were on a good path, which is why it's been, I think, six months since Rasha has left us. Um, and I'm told that we, sh- we should be expecting a new managing partner within the next month or so. So that's exciting. That's Sean Heritage, the acting managing partner at the Defense Innovation Unit, talking with Federal News Radio Scott Massioni. Earlier in the program, we heard from Troy Meyer, the acting DOD Inspector General for Audit, about the IG's latest list of open recommendations. We'll post a link to that compendium at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. You can find this week's full program there as well or on our podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. 
That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbian. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.